This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Welcome, this is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast show with Andrea and Alice. Our community is made up of so many amazing and diverse groups of people, as are the programs on Joy 94.9. There is something there for everyone. A Little Pot of Joy is where we highlight just some of these amazing programs. We would like to show our respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, of elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, whose land we are broadcasting from. We're opening the evening with a podcast from Driving You Mad, Driving You Crazy, Hitting Home. David and Sue speak with Sarah Ferguson about her brand new documentary on domestic violence, Hitting Home, which aired on ABC last week. Sarah talks about the little creepy bits of controlling behaviour that are often warning signs. Domestic violence affects many people in our communities. If you're distressed by the content of this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13114 and switchboard on 1-800-184-527. And if you can't listen to the show live, podcasts are available for download from our Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash Friday Drive. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. You know who I'm loving? Who, David? Sarah Ferguson. She is one very cool person who was grizzling when, when I rang her up because it's hot in Sydney today. Yeah, poor Ooh, thing. She's the whiner. Let's yeah. see her. Hello, Sarah. Hello. That's extremely mean because it's not just hot, it's really hot. <laughs> and I ran to be on your show because I love your show and so I got hot. <laughs> but yeah. don't be mean. Sure. You've never listened to our show before in your life. No, but now I've heard that music playing. I'm a convert. It gives you, you a joy. Didn't it? Didn't it make you feel good? Didn't it make you feel joyous? It did, and I haven't. I've been working very hard, so there hasn't been much lifting of my head to see the dawn. So you've done it for me. Thank you. That's oh, our pleasure. Look, you know, we do what we can. We do what we can. we can. Now, now, listen. We just had to speak to you. This doco yes. that you're being involved in is a two-part doco called uh, "Hitting Home." Tell us about That's it. The one. Well. I wanted to make a, a, a film about all these stories we hear all year long. What do we hear for two years, really? Just nothing except stories about terrible things happening to women, violence against women, and, and it's all going on around me. And we saw the wonderful, glorious Rosie Batty. How cool is she? Take us, how cool is she? Take us all into a, her heart and into what was happening in such a vivid way. So I thought, I need to make a film about this. I don't understand it. I always ask the wrong questions. I ask terrible questions. I say the wrong things about domestic violence. I thought, I better get myself worded up and learn about whatever. Yep. The thing that blew me away, you two, most of all, and this is, this is for everybody who's got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a son or a daughter or a whatever, little creepy bits of controlling behavior someone looking at your face page, telling you not to wear lipstick, don't like that top, don't like the way that bloke looks at you, that sort of baseline creepy behaviour that people tolerate all the time is the precursor, exists in every time there's a death, there's always that, it always starts with that sort of creepy controlling behaviour and I think that that stuff is as much domestic violence as the great big bloke wielding a fist over you in the kitchen. And if you don't know how dangerous, dangerous it is, you can find yourself down a path to a very dangerous place before you even know it. Sarah, do you think a lot of people actually don't know what's going on and don't know that baseline information? 
I think, well, I think so. You may, you may do, but I, I don't think I understood the extent of it. I think when you think about images around domestic violence, what's the picture that every newspaper, every site uses? It's a bloke in the kitchen with his big fist standing sort of in the shadows over a woman. Yeah. And I think all that controlling stuff, unless you've been around it and seen someone's soul get torn apart, because that's what happens, you don't know that that control is always the precursor. And, and I didn't know. You can get... For the first time ever now, you can get AVOs to stop people from hassling you specifically on Facebook. You can now go and get a protection order in Victoria, uh, certainly in New South Wales, I think in Victoria, for people harassing you on social media. And that's part of domestic violence and all those bits of behaviour that, you know, if you've come from a good, you know, a good family and they've taught you what a healthy relationship is, you might be safe. Too many people have no idea that little attempts to isolate control, always in the name of love, that they can lead to very dangerous places. And now you you had spent six months and um, yep. and two separate. Um, well, it's over two weeks, and you you uh, come actually over. We, no, it's over one week, so it's 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 back to back. So you're you're oh. getting the full the full. The full blow in two days. Okay, bit of an unfortunate turn of phrase, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, you know look, we'll I mean. go with it. Uh, but thank you. you. You're covering some really interesting topics, aren't you? Well, we had so we. What, what I decided was you could you could tell this story in with historical stories. So this happened to me ten years ago. This happened to me five years ago. I'm okay now, but this is what happened. Or I did this ten years ago, and, and now I'm better, and I don't do it anymore. And I thought the way to do this is to take people. It's a little bit like the Rosie Batty thing. What was so powerful about her is of course, who she is, but also that she got off the sofa the day after Luke was killed yes. and spoke to us and took us in. Yes. So that sort of, that, that was, in a way, what inspired me to get to the, to the heart of it, so people who were going through it, and that meant following people through court cases. It meant being with police when they go to domestic violence scenes. It means going to prisoners, into prison with prisoners who are learning, supposedly, how to not do it again. It, safe rooms in courts, so all, um, all of these things are the services that are now available to people that lots of people don't know about it. So if, you're, if, you're, if, you're having, if you've been assaulted, this is what happens next. And I didn't just blow in. What we did was I lived in a women's refuge. I went to live with a woman who was going through court. So I wanted to live it with people to try and get a proper sense of what that feels like to be that person at that moment. And what was the, is there one thing that you've walked away from this or is it many things? Well, it's kind of both. It's a good question. But in, in, in a way, it is that the, the shocking thing. We had a look at uh, those things I was talking before, those simple things that start yep. off, you know, don't don't talk to that guy. I really rather your boy, old boyfriend didn't message you and it's only because I love you and all of that sort of nonsense. That blew me away. But we looked at uh, some the case of a woman, a lovely, pretty young girl who was murdered a couple of years ago. Her boyfriend never touched her. He used to say some nasty things, but there'd been no violence. She left him, and of course, the most dangerous time of all for getting away from these people is at the moment that you break up, and in the months after that, and she was murdered in in her flat. And the same thing, when you go back in her story, as you do with so many people, it started with, I don't like that picture you put up on Facebook of you with your of those boys, because I wasn't around, I didn't like the way he was looking at you, and don't wear that lipstick, and all of that stuff that sounds like teenage nonsense was, in fact, the beginnings of him taking control of her life to the point where... In, at the very end, when she left him, he killed her. Right. And is it a case of, you know, like so many women, they think, I can't do anything about it because, you know, like I will cause too much of a fuss within my, my relationship or whatever. You know, that must be one of the hardest things, you know, stepping forward. 
I think it's incredibly hard. And, and, I, and I, as I said before, I did ask all the wrong questions. You know, what's that question we all say? Why doesn't she leave? Yep. Which is now I realise is a dopey question. I, I, kind of, I think I knew it was a dopey question, but I still knew that a lot of people asked it, so I wanted to ask it. And the reason it's the wrong question is that we look at someone who's trying to leave and we assume that everything that's happening is just happening then and we don't understand that she is the product of that relationship so she's probably been broken down over a long period of time her sense of self her sense of her own worth has been broken down so that at the moment that she tries to leave she's lost her capacity to make those decisions he's taken that from her so everyone who gets away i think is incredibly brave and then you're along with that is the fact that if you do go you actually have to be very careful at that moment because that that can be so dangerous so we i sat with we found this wonderful forensic doctor who builds forensic evidence like CSI cases and domestic violence cases, photographs bruises, and she knows if a little bruise is a hand grip or what a strangulation looks like, and that's some very precise knowledge that she has there. And all of the women that I watched come into her surgery, because they were all women in a hospital, they all said, yeah, I'm, he's beaten me so many times, I'm just worthless, I'm ugly, no one else will have me. Oh, I'm sitting there looking at these young women who were just lovely, you know, mm. they're interesting to listen to, they look gorgeous, lovely faces, big smile, and they all, all of them say, of course, I'm, I have, you know, I'm worthless, and he hit me so many times, he, he said that no one would want me, and I believe it. Uh, and Sarah- that's what happens, it's like a cult. Yeah. Sarah, when when is this screening? Next week, Tuesday and Wednesday on your ABC at 8.30. Right. And don't be scared. These are just the most fantastic stories of human drama unfolding in front of you. You really won't want to miss it. It's very confrontational. And obviously in our community, it's not just all the community, but it's not just men against women. We've got women for women and men for men in you know, violence every, is everywhere yeah. around us. And so there is help out there, of course, and please do reach out if there you is. can. Yes, absolutely. Go and see your local police because they, they can be pretty good. There's lots of help. Go get it. Don't be unhappy. I can't bear the thought of all those women out there living, or men or whoever, living yeah. and of course intensely there's, miserable lives. That's right. And, of course, we've got switchboard.org.au and lifeline 131144. Uh, Sarah, well congratulations on doing this. And it's uh, you. Like, just the passion from uh, you describing it today uh, <laughs> with us is, is wonderful. And, um, and it must have been a bloody hard six months that um, are working on this. Yeah, but I've just watched I've just watched both episodes today, and it was worth it. So. Good, good on you. Thank you very much for Thank you very much there. for having me. No, a, an See absolute ya. pleasure. See you later. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. You're on Joy 94.9, and this is A Little Pot of Joy with your hosts, Andrea and Alice. Up next from Well, 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 World AIDS Day. With World AIDS Day coming up tomorrow, Jack and Adam discuss important events for tomorrow with Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria. Please go back and listen to the entire podcast. It has a very important message for everybody. Indeed it does. And you can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash well, 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 or download it for free from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Joy, joy, joy. Hello and welcome to Well, Well, Well. I'm Adam and my co-host today is Jack Bass. G'day Adam and g'day listeners. And today we are joined by Max from Living Positive Victoria. Welcome Max, thanks for coming in. Thanks um, very much. Now World AIDS Day is coming up, of course, on December the 1st. Now this year's World AIDS Day launch is a bit different. When exactly is it and who will be there at the launch? This is important, who will be there? It sure is. So this year it is going to be held at the Doherty Institute 
792 Elizabeth Street in Melbourne, which is opposite Royal Melbourne Hospital and the new Cancer Precinct. So it's a very different venue, but is very much about uh, trying to bring people together from all the streams in the HIV response, and that is community, leadership and science. Now, for years, the launch has been either at State Parliament or last year at Fed Square. So why the change this year? Very much about trying to build upon the uh, International AIDS Conference from 2014, the Melbourne legacy and the statement that came out of that conference, and that is the focus on getting to zero, but bringing together those streams of leadership, science and community into one spot for a whole day Mm. to have more conference-style approach and to engage more people in doing this. Why do you think it's still relevant to hold these big events and with a focus on World AIDS Day in this day and age, Max? I don't think we can ever forget the devastation, the loss, the fear and the absolute uh, stigmatisation of a group of people that occurred in the 80s Mm. and into the 90s. It is still occurring. It is still relevant that we try to highlight the fact that we are all human beings and that we all should be responsible for ourselves. But not only that, to know and understand what it's like to live with HIV because HIV can happen to anybody. And of course, now you've got, uh, you always had very good relationships with David Davis, the former Liberal Health Minister. Any chance he may be there? He's going to be there. He's going to be there, yeah, so he's quite um, committed to the area. I think. He's very, very committed, and um, being in opposition doesn't mean that you disengage from an area like this, and he's mm. shown a lot of commitment. Uh, and when Daniel Andrews was health minister, he yes. again showed a lot of commitment. But the great thing about having health ministers involved at that high level of engagement is that they get to see people living with HIV talking about HIV. Mm. And again, at the launch at nine o'clock, we'll be having two HIV positive speakers, mm-hmm. Will Vials and Christabel Miller. And it is their voices that resonate upon health ministers and thereby create a greater understanding of the realities of living with HIV in 2015. Max, after the launch, which is at the Doherty Centre that morning on December the 1st, a bit later in the day, there's another important event, a community forum as part of World ASA. Can you tell us what's planned for the forum, please? Yes, so the forum is going to be very much focused on prep and being prepared for prep. So it and is. What is prep? Prep is pre exposure prophylaxis. In other words, yep. you can take a pill, Travada, mm. and or its derivatives to actually prevent the transmission of HIV if you're an HIV negative person. And the science, I believe, the science is, pr- is pretty overwhelming. It's, it's, there's dramatic results overseas, dramatic results in San Francisco about the impact of Travada or PrEP is having on the community. Absolutely compelling evidence. Uh, yeah. And that is why there's so much advocacy around this issue. Uh, we know that, of course, for a, a drug to be uh, accepted and onto the... Um, PBS system, it takes quite some time. Mm. However, we're a little bit behind the eight ball as far as I'm concerned. Um, It's been available in the US for a few years. And the the results for zero different couples, whether they're heterosexual or gay, Mm. is just extraordinary. This is mind-changing for Mm. so many people. And it means that everybody can take control about preventing Mm. transmission of HIV and that it's not just back on to HIV-positive people. So it's not just like a morning-after pill. It's a pill that you have to take, is it every day? Yeah, I thought you might be able to tell me this. (laughs) (laughs) 
So oh, look, I can. I was um, just asking you. <laughs> so a bit, little bit of education around it. Look, first and foremost, if you decide to go on to PrEP, if you're accessing it from overseas and or from Australia, you need to see your doctor every three months. You also need to be aware that you need to take it consistently. Mm. Now, there's some studies saying you can take it for a few days before if you're going to go out and, and have fun, or you should be taking it all the time. The best evidence is that it should be consistent in its dosing, and you need to have that level of drug in your body to prevent HIV taking hold. Who's on the panel at this forum? Well, it's hosted by the inimitable Dean Beck. Oh, from Joy. <clears throat> from Joy, of yes. course. And uh, this is very much a strong partnership with Victorian AIDS Council and Living Positive Victoria and Joy. It is uh, going to have a panel of different members. One will be Simon Ruth from VAC. From VAC yep. uh, one will be Brent Allen, our CEO from Living Positive Victoria. We're going to have some of the PrEP advocates who have been advocating in the community mm. outside of the mainstream organisations. So they're going to be there. Uh, we'll also be having Sarah Graham from Straight Arrows uh, representing um, the voice of uh, heterosexual people living with HIV. And one of the more interesting people who is incredibly well informed is um, Mark Stuve from The Burnett. Researcher, now, yeah. So he's an eminent researcher, especially yeah. around the areas of men who have sex with men. And um, some of the more outstanding science that's being done, both across at Doherty, Burnett, and in partnership across the world around a whole range of, of areas, such as looking at a vaccine, looking at other ways we can defeat the virus. But first and foremost, this discussion is about PrEP, and mm. it's very much about trying to have everybody who wants it be able to access it rather than just on a trial basis. Or importing it at a great cost, Yeah, which Although, some people do. I do understand that people are importing it for around about uh, $80 a month. So comparably with a, a prescription, that's pretty good. It's not too bad. Mm. This is also at the Doherty? Correct. So the same venue, just at what time does this commence? That commences at 11 o'clock and that's after our morning tea, which is a community-based morning tea for people to get together to remember, to reflect about friends, family, lovers that they've lost, but also people who are now living with HIV and their hopes for the future. So the morning tea will be about getting us ready to go into this discussion mm -hmm. around the whole community taking responsibility to advocate for PrEP for HIV-negative people. And let's just think a little bit more broadly into, into a global perspective, and that is that heterosexuals who, who one partner is positive and one partner is negative, PrEP is crucial for them to feel safe. Absolutely. So it's not just about condoms and lube. I know a discordant couple and they said you can't believe the pressure, the burden it lifts off their shoulders, yeah. having a safety net that they, if they, if they have a slip up, well, they can be uh, like a normal, intimate, loving couple yeah. and uh, without the fear in heterosexual terms of pregnancy or in gay terms of, of uh, contracting <laughs> HIV. And I've heard that many, many times from people living in different HIV status relationships. And there is always the fear of the positive person transmitting yeah. the virus. I want to make it really clear, though, that people who are on effective long-term treatment with undetectable viral loads, the reality is if you are taking PrEP and your partner is positive on effective treatment, they are hardly able to transmit the virus. So That's the right. fear about us as HIV positive people yeah. transmitting the virus and us being demonised, mm. suddenly we've now got some balance back into this world. 
PrEP, HIV medication, combine that and we are going to be looking at a huge reduction in HIV transmissions. That's a very important point to make, Max, about um, adherence and if you're on antiretrovirals and on PrEP, really, that's a game changer. Absolutely. And so if people want to come along and get, I guess, maybe not involved, but hear more about the discussion from a research side, a community Mm -hmm. side and a a sector side, um, how do they find out? Is it the same sort of websites that you mentioned earlier? It is the same websites. And not only that, you can go onto Eventbrite and look at World AIDS Day getting to zero. All of the websites that are now promoting all of these events, you've just got to log on there. But more importantly, rock up on the day. Yep. But we would love to know how many people are coming just for something that's, like catering. That's you know, a little that bit would help. Security. <laughs> I think we'll be there, won't we, Adam? Yeah. Yes, we will. That's uh, 792 Elizabeth Street in the city, opposite the Royal Melbourne, the Doughty Centre. Correct. Thanks for coming in, Max. We appreciate that. This is Well, Well, Well. You're on Joy 94.9 in this little part of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from Is Nothing Sacred, here with all of my people. Tonight's show is all about human rights, with Jim and Steph first talking to Samantha Betts, who worked in the detention centre in Nauru and became a whistleblower and advocate, speaking publicly about what she saw there. Also, the meaning of my people by the presets, covered by the Basement Boys, is revealed. And if you just can't listen to the show live, download the podcast from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash is nothing sacred, or the iTunes store. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Steph, who, who have we got... Uh who have we got on the show first? So our first guest tonight, we spoke to earlier this evening. Her name is Samantha Betts. Um, she was working in Nauru at the detention centre and became a whistleblower and ended up giving evidence at the Senate inquiry into the conditions she of that She was one centre. of those, those naughty Save the Children Fund staff who the Abbott government accused of all sorts of incitement of um, dissent amongst the asylum seekers, I believe, and... They we were, think, and they were eventually taken off the island. We think she's a bit of a hero. So we've got that interview right now. My background is in community development and uh, programs in the community. Um, and at the, at the time I was looking for more international experience and just to work with more, more cultural diversity, I guess, and get a bit of a grasp of what, um, how other people live. Um, so I had a friend... Um, uh, sort of put me on to the job description and I had a look and I thought it was really interesting work. Um, so I applied and three months later I still hadn't heard anything. So I thought, oh, okay, well, that's the end of that. Um, and then one Tuesday afternoon I got a phone call and it was Dave and they'd like an interview. So I did the interview on the Wednesday. Uh, Thursday I got a call saying that they liked me and to do my police checks. Uh, Friday, I got my flight itinerary to fly out that Sunday. Wow. So that was pretty fast, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah, it, it was really fast, and it was a total whirlwind because I'd put it back uh, back in my mind for so long. Um, so I hadn't really kept up to date with the political situation and what was happening on Ireland. So it was really rushed, and I got there completely uh, unprepared and... Um, yeah, it was it was such a whirlwind. What was it like when you arrived? As was it a bit of a culture shock? Total culture <laughs> shock. Um, so I, I thought Nauru was a little bit more developed than what it actually is. It's um, not your typical so, South Pacific paradise island, is it? 
No, no, absolutely not. So, um, for example, I was quite surprised to learn that you couldn't really swim on the island because the currents were so strong and we were advised to not swim um, unless it was in this specific harbour area where it was actually sort of gated in by a um, cement wall just for the current. Um, the, the beaches are relatively... Uh, they're not up to sort of our, um, our view of luxury. Uh, but the island itself, it's really, really hot. Um, it's quite glary, so the whole island is um, made out of phosphate, so it's this white rock, um, essentially, so it's very glary. Uh, on on a good day in summer, it will get around 40 degrees up to 50 degrees. Wow. Um, in, in the tents of where these people are living, it's very humid. There's little to no agriculture, so the, the health status of the local people is um, quite questionable. There's yeah, there's so many sort of issues underlying in in Nauru itself um, that they've just been this forgotten mm. country in in um, the Micronesia region. And what about inside the detention centre? Can you talk a bit about your work there um, and I guess the conditions for people living there as well? So essentially, it's um, there's three different compounds on Nauru. Um, so there's Yes, yeah, three different camps. So I was working in the third one, which was called OPC3, which housed the uh, family groups, the single adult females and the unaccompanied minors, and later on the infants. Um, so I was employed by Save the Children as a child and youth recreation worker, and what that is is providing a bit of a childhood to the kids. Uh, so we would do things after school, so after the Save the Children teachers did their lessons, we would come in and do things like soccer, art and craft, ping pong, we'd bring in a TV and um, play some Xbox for a while, we'd do dancing and basketball and, and just try and give these kids a bit of an outlet to to engage socially with each other and to actually have some fun. So that it does sound like quite fun, but unfortunately that wasn't um, always the case, is that right, um, Samantha, with this, what, what uh, I suppose, in the length of your time there, or how long were you there and, and what were some of the... I suppose, not so positive uh, things that you witnessed? So I was employed for about 10 months, but our rotations were three weeks on island, three weeks off. So we got to we were fly in, fly out. So we had a bit of time at home as well. Um, so the downsides far outweigh any positives uh, that are on that island. For example, they don't have shoes. Well, when I was there, um, they they weren't being supplied with shoes. So even though we'd put on soccer, these four children had to run around on sharp white rocks that were hot to, to play soccer. The, the clothing was completely inadequate. There were kids that would have to tie their clothing onto them, like their shorts were oh. so big that they, they couldn't walk properly. The meal times were all uh, regimented, so they'd eat at sort of set times in the mess hall. The food is completely inadequate. And not nutritious, I might add. So people were getting sort of deficiencies in certain vitamins and things like that because it was just so inadequate. So what kind of what kind of food would they be given? Like what would they have um, for lunch? So, so we're talking about like consistent diet of rice, which is fine, um, except it's it sits there for so long that it sort of just glugs together, oh. so it becomes this sort of inconsistent goop. Um, <laughs> and the meat was always uh, the scrappy off cut. Um, filled with sinew and things. So it wasn't necessarily nutritious food um, compared to what we would set as a standard in Australia. 
So would you describe the detention centre as anything other than a prison? I think, I know this is going to sound a bit controversial, but prisons are actually better than what they're they're getting there. Um, So I've worked in prisons in Australia, and the clear difference is the the psychological detainment that these people are in. So in Australia, if if you're uh, sentenced to um, incarceration, you have had a trial of some description, you have an approximate length of stay, you have access to legal representation and an appeal, and your, your basic human rights are met. So if you need medical care, you can get it. If you need psychiatric care, you can get it. In these detention centres, they have none of that. And what really wears people down is not having the time or the, the, their known length of stay. So they have no idea how long they're going to be in detention for. And that's particularly concerning for kids because they have a hard concept um, after a hard time conceptualising time anyway. Sam, how, they, many, how many unaccompanied children are there there? I, I don't know at present. I, I really don't know. I'm sorry. When you uh, were there? While I was there, we had a group of 20 uh, young males that were all around 17 uh, years old, and the key concern for them while they were in there was as soon as they turned 18, they had to be moved into the adults' camp and separated from their friends and people their age. So, in terms of the protection of children and young people, were the sorts of regulations that we would think acceptable in Australia for child protection available to those kids? No. So, in Nauru, there's no formal justice system. It's quite a tribal system. Um, And that happens as well uh, just inherently because it is such a small community. There's only about 8,000, 10,000 people that live on this island. So, everyone sort of knows everyone. So there's no formal justice system in terms of what we know. Well, they um, deported the Chief not... Justice, who was an Australian, and the Chief Magistrate, and the um, and the Police Chief, all of whom were Australians, were deported. Yes, that was quite <laughs> quite the scandal at the time as well. I'm here with all of my people Locked up with all of my people So let me hear you scream if you're with me We have just been listening, Steph, too. So that song was a request from our first guest for this evening, Samantha Betts, and that was My People by The Presets, but covered by Basement Birds. I so, never realised. Little known fact, that song is actually about people locked up in detention. Everyone sings and dances as though it's about being in a club, so it's kind of got reappropriated, but I'm no. Lo- I'm locked up with my people as the word, major words of it. We're playing it in solidarity for people who are currently in detention. Pretty, um, Some pretty um, amazing statements, I suppose, by Sam, and backed up with, with some amazing facts that it's worse than prison, in her opinion. I'd be interested to hear your views, Emily. So we've also got uh, Emily Howie in the studio here from the Human Rights Law Centre. Um, yeah, what was your response? Were you unsurprised? Yeah, I mean, we've known for a while that the conditions in Nauru are cruel and inhumane. That's what the UN has said and what numerous reports from NGOs have said 
Um, we've had UN. Sixty ex- degrees in a tent is not very nice, is it? Oh, no. And no shoes. It's it's absolutely unacceptable that Australia is sending people to be held in those conditions. And also when we know that loads of other horrible things are going on, we're sending women to a place where they're not safe from sexual violence, there's awful conditions in the camps, and then there's a lack of safety for those who are found to be refugees and living outside the camps. So, I mean, it's it's an awful set of conditions she's describing, uh, but also just um, terrible mm. that there's not proper transparency about Mm. what's going on inside those places and that someone like Samantha has to risk prosecution in order for us to know what's going on. You're listening to Joy 94.9 and this is A Little Pot of Joy with Alice and Andrea. Tomorrow is the 1st of December, which is World AIDS Day. HIV does exist in Australia. HIV can affect anyone and there is no vaccine or cure for HIV. The good news is that the transmission of HIV is preventable. By being informed about how HIV is transmitted and how to protect ourselves and others, we can prevent the spread of HIV. Up next from Hide and Seek with Dean Beck and Andrew the Apprentice, how does the mainstream media understand HIV? Following the announcement by Charlie Sheen that he is HIV positive, Dean and Andrew chat with Joel Murray, a self-described libertarian writer who is HIV positive, about the mainstream media's coverage of HIV safe sex and the broader impact that HIV impacts on individuals. And Joel Murray actually just received a Positive Advocacy Award from Living Positive Victoria at their 2015 AGM. So congratulations, Joel. HIV is one of the more important issues at present. You really need to go back and listen to the entire podcast. And you can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the JOY website, joy.org.au forward slash hide and seek, or download it for free from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Good evening. Welcome to Hide and Seek. I'm Dean Beck. This is your show for exploring sex, sexuality and self. And he is Andrew the Apprentice. Good evening, Dean. We'll be joined by a Mr. Joel Murray, who is a man who is living with HIV. (laughs) Earlier today, overnight Melbourne time, Charlie Sheen spoke to... Uh, the Today Show in the USA, and together with his doctor, they had this to say. Now more of our exclusive conversation with Charlie Sheen. In our last half hour, he shared a very personal announcement that he is HIV positive. This is an educational moment. Uh, We are in 2015, and while no one wants a diagnosis of being HIV positive, people live long, normal, productive lives while they carry the, the virus. Charlie has contracted the HIV virus. He was immediately put on treatment, strong antiviral drugs, which have suppressed the virus. Unfortunately, we don't have a cure yet. It's suppressed the virus to the point that he is absolutely healthy from that vantage. So you're saying to me at the moment, Charlie has an undetectable level of the virus in his blood. That is absolutely correct. There have been some media outlets over the last couple of days speculating that Charlie has AIDS. Charlie does not have AIDS. AIDS is a condition when the HIV virus markedly suppresses the immune system and you're susceptible to rare, difficult cancers and infections. Charlie has none of those. He is healthy. He does not have HIV. He does not have AIDS. Charlie, are you taking the so-called triple cocktail? Is that what medication you're on? Every day. How many pills are you taking each day? Four. 
That is, of course, the uh, interview with Charlie Sheen, that, along with his uh, physician. Our thanks to those at the Today Show for that audio. Yes. Now, uh, Joel Murray, thank you for joining us on Hide and Seek. It's always a pleasure. Very big day for the HIV sector, I'd suggest. Absolutely huge, I think. I think this is a really fantastic opportunity for a lot of people who don't know much about the virus or have had no contact with the virus in a long time to start to talk about it. As the host said, it's, it's a huge educational moment for, for the sector. Absolutely. I mean, the, the reach of this, you know, uh, has been into, you know, the general population. And Hide and Seek's um, co-host James Finlay, who's tweeted earlier today, currently having discussions about the differences between HIV and AIDS. <laughs> right. Joel, people living with HIV have been having those conversations every single day of their life uh, since their diagnosis. It, uh, it never ends, does it? No, it doesn't. You know, the first disclosure of your status is probably the hardest, but um, it, doesn't, it doesn't always get easier. I find it really interesting that Matt Lauder opened with you must be feeling a sense of relief having spoken out and he said uh, you know an unbelievable sense of relief it is uh, i mean to have a public disclosure uh, and to be comfortable with your own status so much so that you are going to disclose it is a wonderful thing. And we've seen that complicated by the fact that he was blackmailed over so many years. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it, wasn't, it certainly wasn't on his own terms uh, in some ways. But as, as we've sort of seen in the broader media, uh, there seems to be a, a commentary that... Uh, and Charlie's sort of indicated that himself, it's sort of a sense of empowerment uh, comes now. And and, and he'll stop paying and, <laughs> as yeah, of yeah. today. And also, you know? but, but as he indicated at the very end, this could be something that assists him to reduce his substance use and, and also improve his I, mental health. I thought that was a really interesting comment at the very end. I mean, Matt Larder made it very clear that uh, he should give up drinking, which I thought was um, a little pointed. Mm. But... Um, but at least uh, Charlie acknowledged that perhaps with the sense of relief that this brings him, that's a possibility that hasn't been so. I think the large, largest part to play is the stigma, the internal stigma that a person who is uh, newly diagnosed or, you know... That space of blackmail only exists with the presence of stigma. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, you've only got something over someone if their own internalised shame outweighs whatever the price tag is. Oh, it's horrible. Stigma it is, horrible. is horrible. It really is horrible. So, so how do you think these conversations... We, we've sort of seen, a, certainly in, in LGBTI media, that, that obviously we're sort of leading the charge in, this is how you should be talking about it. What, what, is, what have you been ob your observations of how mainstream in inverted commas media is covering it i think they're, they're in australia particularly they're covering it in quite a sensitive way i was it's been surprising you know you read the online article and you know, so the journalist gets you know they get the terms right and they're respectful and they talk about it in a non sort of judgmental way but it's then when you go onto the comments underneath the article mm. that you know, I, th I think right, it's, yeah. it's important to acknowledge that uh in the lead-up to this, we had 24 hours of discussion, which in itself was wrong. I mean, it was about disclosing his status before he'd actually spoken. That in itself is incorrect. But what it did do was give our agencies, like Living Positive Victoria and the Victorian AIDS Council, a chance to step forward into that media space and say, look, we're here to provide expert commentary, and these are the guidelines that you need to, when it goes live, have the conversation in your articles that is compliant 
correct and factual. Yeah, I think that was really integral. Also, was to have those voices in the media mix today. For example, the moment I opened Facebook, I had multiple articles from people living in the sector, but in mainstream media. And Paul Kidd was on the radio from 7.30 this morning. I heard Brent Allen uh, today at uh, just after 3 o'clock on ABC Radio. So those guys have been working their butts off. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was Paul Kidd's article I saw this morning on SBS, right. for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a lot to thank them for. <laughs> we do, we do. So, Joel, as, as was sort of mentioned, you know, the, the mental health sector, I guess, has got organisations that have got guidelines around, and we use them here at Joy, around how to talk about mental health. Is it the case that, that obviously, obviously, although it takes this sort of time for a, for the HIV sector to do the same thing, do you think there's a case that we, we the HIV sector needs to make sure that those guidelines are... A well-known broadly. I think there is a role. On a day-to-day basis, I guess. Well, no, but I think this is the opportunity to have that conversation. So, you know, it's that ongoing conversation about what are the right terms, what are stigma-free terms, Mm. you know, what is the difference between HIV and AIDS, for example. These are really important things for the media to get right because if they get it wrong, then, you know, what does it say of two people living with HIV already? Mm. For many of them, the last time they commented on this was over a decade ago, like to the extent that they are today. And I think uh, a hell of a lot's changed in uh, 10 years, you know, Um, not the least of which is uh, the life expectancy of people living with HIV and their projected outcomes. The doctors spoke, of course, with permission of Charlie Sheen. It's important to note that. But their discussion around uh, treatment as prevention, the suppression of the virus, was an interesting one. It was one that uh, the host, Matt, struggled to get his head around. But I found it interesting that the conversation around Uh, protected sex and the transmission of HIV, Charlie Sheen paused before answering and said his was protected sex. Now, protected sex has changed in the last uh, three years. Uh, Yeah. Mm. It it includes treatment as prevention. So, you know, people living with an undetectable viral load, you know, it's virtually impossible for them to pass on the virus with the absence of condoms. And in, in some... In fact, they could actually... Treatment as prevention could be more... Are effective than condoms. And it we're comes, still having that conversation. Yeah, it comes down to that definition of protection, really, doesn't it? it, it you know, I think um, us in the sector broadly or in the LGBTI space, I suppose, are now getting used to using the phrase condomless sex yes. as opposed to protected sex, which is still, you know, it's a struggle sometimes. You always forget sometimes. But um, that, that certainly wasn't the language... That, that was u- being used uh, in the interview. And the other thing is it's also is the safe safe versus safer safe, yeah, sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, um, I, I think it is, if you get the terms right, um, you know, it takes a bit, little bit to get used to. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, we are talking about HIV transmission. We're not talking about the other STIs. So, uh, yep. you know... It, you have to be careful about the language that you use to make sure that the message is right. You're on Joy 94.9 with Andrea and Alice. We've come to the end of another amazing evening of Little Pot of Joy. There are so many more programs on Joy 94.9 producing a diverse range of content and podcasts. 
Even your favourite program from the past will have a podcast so you can go back and listen to your favourite Joy moments. And there's been a lot. It's actually Joy's birthday tomorrow on World AIDS Day, which is amazing. 22 years. That's right. 22nd birthday or anniversary rather, I think, our 22nd anniversary. So make sure you tune in tomorrow because it's going to be a jam-packed day full of beautiful memories and celebrations. A very great day. Happy birthday to Joy a little early. You've been listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. See joy.org.au and click on our podcast link to subscribe to your favourite podcasts free. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.